0: Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode, I'll be talking to journalists, experts, and long time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society, and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How did the Chinese see these issues? Have a listen to this. You I took this clip from travel YouTuber Monkey Abroad, who vox popped people from different corners of China to ask them to say the phrase, Have you eaten yet? In their home dialect. As you can hear, these phrases didn't all sound very alike to the Mandarin that I've just said, or indeed to each other. This episode is all about the very many different languages or dialects or accents found across China, which is perhaps no surprise given the country's geographical span is about the same as the continent of Europe. The Chinese call these Yan, and each Chinese person will likely be able to speak at least one Yan, while also understanding standard Mandarin, which is the official language of the People's Republic. It means that the Chinese are more multilingual than you might think. But it also means that the question of language is inherently a political one too. Standard Mandarin, in fact, has a relatively short history, created from the desire of the country's founding fathers to unify the spoken word in a huge country. So how did Standard Mandarin get created? Does it threaten Feng Yin from different regions? And how do these languages, if they are indeed separate languages, impact a sense of national identity? Joining me today to talk about language and nationalism is Gina Tam, a historian and author of Dialect and Nationalism in China. Gina, welcome to Chinese Whispers. Thank you so much for having me on. Now, to start with, I wondered if you could give a brief history of the official language of the People's Republic of China, what we commonly call Mandarin or Chinese, but it's in fact a relatively new thing, standardised Mandarin, Putonghua. Tell us about it.
1: Absolutely. So I think when we want to think about when there started to be a standard Chinese language or one oral language that is standardized and represents the nation in the entire in its entirety, we have to think about when we start thinking about China as a nation state altogether, right? So we often think of China as having a really, really long history. And The people who have lived in China and have had like a state that they see as like a unified governance um, off and on, depending on when we're talking about, is a really long history. But the idea of a nation state, right, which is sort of independently sovereign in a Country or in a world of nation states, right where everybody is a citizen and is unified by one particular identity, that's relatively new. And to to situate when we have that, we have to think about sort of the late nineteenth century. Um, in the mid nineteenth century, the Qing dynasty loses a war to Britain and is suddenly subject to a series of defeats at the hands of Western powers um, and having its sovereignty threatened by Western imperialism, right? And, and by the time at the end of the 19th century, Japanese imperialism as well, right? And so there's this urgency that you get among Chinese elites that, right, like that there's the, the sovereignty and their power is being threatened and that in the world that they're living in right now, sovereign nationhood is how you survive. Right, and they talk a lot about all of the different things that will give them sovereign nationhood. But one of the things that comes up a lot is is a fear that people of China don't think of themselves as Chinese, and a criticism that a lot of Western countries throw is at China is saying like, well, there's this China is this country, but like there's no Chinese language, right? So like everyone speaks something different. There's a written standard that a lot of people use, which. I don't know if we'd call it a standard right but there's a written tradition but not everybody reads it and it's also not really tied to an oral language And and Chinese elites take that really seriously. And they start to say, if we're going to be a modern nation state that survives, we have to have a standard language. Now, there's a lot of ideas thrown around about what that standard language would be. And in the early days, there's a lot of talk about the fact that like, maybe there's not just one language spoken in China that can represent everybody, right? Because we have lots of Chinese languages, right? Um, And so there are attempts even to sort of like recreate or create some sort of like er er-Chinese language, right, that, that accommodates the phonological characteristics of a lot of different Chinese languages, that sort of falls apart because no one really speaks this invented language. And so finally, by the time we get to the 1920s, elites are suggesting that China sort of follow in the path of other nation states that they're looking at in terms of language reform, like Japan and France, who based their standard language off the language of the capital, and they suggest Beijing as the standard and this is picked up by the nationalists in 1927 in their government, and then it is also picked up by the Chinese Communist Party when they take over in 1949. The CCP they they change the definition of well they change the name of it first right so the nationalists call it Guoyu or like national language. The CCP calls it Putonghua or the common tongue. And there are differences slight, right, between these two, not only like how they're spoken, but also how they're imagined. But generally, we're talking about a language based on the language of Beijing that is that is meant to sort of supersede it a little bit. But and so, yeah, so that's where we get standard Mandarin. Amazing and, and
0: and you know Growing up in schools That was Putonghua was what we were taught in And what we were taught to speak um, And I guess as a child You never really think You know Why is it that at schools That we speak This particular kind of Chinese In and at home We're speaking the Nanjing dialect Or the Yangzhou dialect Or whatever it is People just seem to be able To code switch in modern China So I guess my next question to you is By creating that standardized Mandarin The regional dialects or languages Or whatever you want to call it And we will get into the terminology as well they didn't go away. They are still there in modern China today. So can you explain that situation for a British or American listener where, you know, in the UK or the US, you do just speak one language across the the, the, the country yeah. and they're pretty much largely intelligible to each other, even if you have very thick Scottish accent versus a very thick London accent or whatever it is, they, you still are pretty much intelligible. So, So tell us about what is it in China that means that there are so many regional dialects
1: and what does that mean? Yeah, so... I think you're right. I think because of this idea that like language equals ethnicity equals nation, we often think of like languages, like countries of having, like nation states of having one language. China has long been extremely multilingual. And so there are dozens or even hundreds of local languages, dialects, and, and you're right, that terminology gets uncomfortable. So we often call them all dialects right? Um, And this includes well-known ones like Cantonese and Taiwanese and Shanghainese, but also even sort of within these regions, like within the region of Guangdong, right? Like there are lots and lots of different kinds of ways of speaking what we would call sort of like the Yue language or the Yue Yue dialects, right? And so um, in some contexts, right, these are mutually intelligible, right? So like people can go from say, Beijing to Qingdao, and they may struggle a lot, and there's going to be different regional vocabulary, and there's going to be different ways of (laughs) pronunciating things, right? But like, you can sort of muddle through a little bit, right? But if you're a Mandarin speaker, and you go to Guangzhou, or you go to like, and you go to a Cantonese speaking region, those are really quite different, right? They're, they're probably about as different as French and Portuguese. And not just in terms of pronunciation, but also in terms of grammar, right? So Cantonese has its own grammar structures. And in terms of vocabulary, which gets even more complicated when you get into Hong Kong, and you have sort of like the influence of English there too. But the same with Shanghainese, right? Mm. Like these are not really mutually intelligible. And so they're, they're really, really, so we're, we're sort of like calling them all dialects, but linguistically, right? They are, they are really sort of like, not just distinct from one another, but like distinct in their relationship with the language that we often think of as Chinese.
0: Mm, that's really interesting. And, and Gina, is the way to think about it then that when it comparing it to Europe, you know, China is often compared to Europe in terms of its geographical size. So when it comes to linguistic complexity, is a better way to think about it also that this kind of similar size landmass has just as many diverse dialects languages whatever you want to call it as like a European continent would
1: yeah so uh, one time I, I heard a comparison that I think has merit but we probably need to complicate a little bit of like imagine if the Roman Empire just like like broke up, but then got back together. <laughs> and like that whole landmass was then turned into a nation state. And that's the kind of linguistic diversity that we're looking at. And like, I think that that's a really interesting metaphor. The thing that gets really complicated, right? And so there's a lot of conversations among linguists of how to translate the term yen, um, because there are a lot of linguists who are really uncomfortable with translating it as dialect. And the reason that, that, that they're uncomfortable with that is for two reasons. One is that it presumes mutual intelligibility in a way that is just not true on the ground, right? And the other reason that it's uncomfortable is because when you say something is a dialect of something, that of something is really complicated, right? Because we it's so easy to have this slippage where it's like, well, Mandarin is the national language, it's the Chinese language, right? So that means that everything else is sort of like a subsidiary of Mandarin, which is like deeply untrue, right? Like linguistically, that's just deeply untrue. Cantonese is not a branch of Mandarin, and and in fact, Cantonese speakers really take offense to that because they see their language as having more ancient roots than that of Mandarin, which is a whole other conversation. <laughs> but either way, right? Like that framing is just sort of incorrect. And so, there are attempts sometimes to think of fang yen, like to create a new term for it, right? So, like you'll have terms like top elect or region elect um, that people will use because there's a discomfort, I think of thinking about like cantonese as a language because we so often tie language to ethnicity. And so my my personal take on that is that I don't think we have to tie language to ethnicity, but and so I think language is probably the right word here. But I think there's something really striking about Sort of a group of languages, dialects, whatever you want to call them that have been tied to a common sort of script and written tradition for a really, really long time. So there is sort of mm. like, there's that kind of unity that or that or that kind of connection, right, that exists. Um that's really interesting. And so one of the ways I like to think about it is that maybe instead of thinking like is Cantonese a language you should ask like is Italian a fangyan. Um, <laughs> and sort of flip the script, right? Because part of the problem <laughs> is that we're presuming that what is essentially a euro-american framework of language and dialect is like fits everywhere and it it doesn't quite fit, I think.
0: I, I sometimes think this when I whenever I go to a European country, for example, in the Scandinavian countries, you can see a lot of similarities in their languages and the words that they use. And similarly, for Italian and Latin, you might say or Spanish and Portuguese, but I don't want to offend any European listeners of the podcast. But we are talking about, you know, I, I did find it very striking in your book when you said that Shanghainese and Cantonese and standard Mandarin are are as different to each other as Spanish and Portuguese and French, and yet we count those as separate languages when we when we study in schools in the in the West. But in the in China, people are often just expected to be well. If those are languages, they're bilingual or trilingual or more. Yeah, um, which I just think is such a fascinating. As you say, it doesn't quite map across.
1: Yeah. It's and it is really interesting. And like any metaphor we use is going to be imperfect. Right. Um, I always wonder if there are, are, are Spanish and Portuguese speakers out there who don't like that metaphor all that much. And so like all metaphors are imperfect. But to me, sort of one of one of the things that gets really troubling about this, right, is that you have academics who are trying to find like the exact right term here. And I think that the sort of goal of taking China out of the Euro-American framework, right. And like looking at it on its own terms is really valuable. The problem to me of sort of like trying to not call like Cantonese languages and stuff like that is that ultimately when we're thinking about the dialect language dichotomy, we're thinking about it in like, it is ultimately a question of power. Right. Um, And then to me, if there's like sort of anything that comes out of this conversation for your listeners, I hope it's that. Right. And so languages denote identities and therefore deserve investment in their preservation their celebration and their everyday usage right we think languages should thrive right we should teach them in schools we should teach them abroad right um whereas dialects are often considered lesser than or subsidiary or branches of a language um, that don't deserve investment um and it's fine to not invest in them because like i mean it's like well we're already teaching this language why do we need to teach this dialect too Right. And so on a very practical level, whether we're trying to get the sense of like how linguistically different are these modes of speech and such like that. At the end of the day, the problem to me of calling every all of this sort of regional languages dialects is that it robs them of that power and makes it kind of okay to not invest in their preservation. And these are people's mother tongues. These are, these are, these matter mm. to people. Um, they're really, they're at the heart of, of sort of who they are. And so the term dialect sort of like, I think creates a, like normalizes a permissibility of not caring about it. And that to me is, is like, just on sort of like a political practical level, the problem of calling them all dialects.
0: And, and this is the crux of why I think this topic is so important. It, it's because we're not just having a linguistic conversation here, you know, splitting hairs about what counts as a dialect or language, or isn't it interesting that China has so many of these, but actually the political implications and the implications for national identity here. Um, but before we go further with that, Gina, maybe you can just explain, you know, at the beginning you gave a brief history of how Putonghua came about, but then how has it become prevalent? Because it has had the force of the state behind it, hasn't it? The state has very much, under the People's Republic, of China very much try to make it the lingua franca, as it were. Tell us about the processes involved in that.
1: Absolutely, right. So early on, right, there's the stating that this is the national language, and then there's making it a national language, right? And so a lot of these policies start before 1949 with the KMT. The huge focus is on education, right? The idea is that we're never going to get like 70-year-old grandmas (laughs) to change the language they speak every day, right? But we can... Teach it to kids. There's a lot of debate about how um, effective the KMT education policies were, but there's an attempt to sort of introduce the national language in schools. Another interesting part of this is that because um, most of these regional languages share a script, that you like the script actually facilitates multilingualism in China. Um, And so there are also attempts to standardize how to write out its pronunciation. Today there is one that we generally use most commonly, and that's Pinyin. That was created by the CCP. Um, sometimes you will also see Wade Giles, which was up until recently used in Taiwan, or still used in Taiwan, and still used in like if you if you pick up older books on China, um, and and so some 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 Wade Giles is still kind of around, right? But that and that's was the difference between also...
0: Beijing and Peking for people who.
1: Well, so actually, Peking I don't is not Wade Giles. Actually, that's a, that's so. There's so many different oh. romanizations, which is so fascinating. Sorry to confuse the matter. <laughs> no, it's okay. Because like, like, because Peking actually, I think it, like that is a, that is a, a regional language pronunciation of it, right? Like the K and the J, which is really interesting. And so like another one that's fascinating that I love is Taipei. Like we spell that T-A-I-P-E-A. That's also not Wade Giles. It's like halfway between Wade Giles and not, because Wade Giles would put it in- up. <laughs>
0: Let's move on. I'm confused matters. I'm sorry, Gina. <laughs> <Don't>, continue <laughs> I, where, I, you I, le- where you were, way you, you interrupting you please no no, no no no
1: you you've made me nerd out about it actually because i think this is so interesting <laughs> that there's like well and i i think what what this example actually gets at is that for like 20, 30 years, there are loads of different ways that people are romanizing Chinese, right? Because they've realized that this is a problem, that if you're going to teach people a pronunciation, you need to have a tool for that pronunciation. And so there are just like dozens, if not hundreds of ways of romanizing Chinese. One of the ones that I find incredibly fascinating, since we're on this tangent already, is uh, there's a linguist named Zhao Ren who argues that Like, if you're going to think like a speaker of a Chinese language, you need to think tonally. And that one of the problems with romanizations of Chinese is that they do not visually denote tone, right? So like, you know, like that, 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 right? Like the four tones of Mandarin. And so um, he actually suggested including extra letters to denote tones. And so if you look at it, there's all these like, double vowels and Z's and Y's and H's that don't make any sense, but they're, well, they do make sense because they're there to denote tone, but like you wouldn't pronounce them. Right. And, and so you get all kinds of different suggestions, but to, to bring it back, right? Like today, the most common one is Hanyu Pinyin, right? Um, which is the one where where if you want to see street signs in China, right? So that's one of the ways that the state is trying to promote and create Mandarin as a national language. Some of it you get through just sort of state messaging. So starting in the 50s, they have these like speak Mandarin, speak Putonghua um, exhibitions where, where kids like compete in their pronunciation and stuff like that. Um like spelling bees like spelling bees yeah and very good analogy yeah and so but (laughs) really not until we get into like after the cultural revolution that this starts actually becoming effective right so a lot of people I talked to for this book um who grew up going to school in the 1950s and 60s um would essentially say like, yeah, we were supposed to learn Mandarin, but like our teachers didn't really speak it. And like, maybe we learned opinion. Um, But like, it wasn't a priority, right? Because again, like you have to have teachers who speak this fluently. And most of the teachers don't speak it fluently, right? They just sort of like, teach it at a basic level. Um, and not everyone's going to school. But after like starting in essentially the 1980s, right, there is a systemization of this, right? And so like enforcing it, not only among teachers, like teachers have to have a very high level of Mandarin to become teachers, shifting towards not just teaching like Chinese classes in Mandarin, but also science and math and history and teaching all those classes in Mandarin as well. Um, and then also enforcing it in other spaces like subways or uh, in the 1980s, we don't have really have subways, but like buses and public transportation and making sure hotel workers speak Mandarin and these kinds of spaces. Yeah. And that is where you start to get, I think, like a real sense of Mandarin hegemony because all of the state structures are geared towards teaching mandarin. And then this takes to me like another big turning point is within the last 10 years or so where two things have happened. One is that a lot of the ways that if we think about how languages are preserved and how we use them, a big space for that is online spaces, right? Whether it's it's videos or mm. blogs or however you want to right that's where a lot of language use happens. And with online spaces comes a lot of creativity, like an option for like the opportunity for creativity, but so too the opportunity for surveillance and the opportunity for like digging into people's private conversations and lives in a way that was not really possible before. And so what I think we've seen in terms of how, like what kinds of structures are geared towards Mandarin hegemony that has increasingly become online spaces, which create sort of a new level, I think, of like interference and how people preserve, like, at some point, you can't help what people are speaking at their kitchen table. Um, But if you can make it difficult for them to create videos and content, in languages besides Mandarin, which is true now, right? It's, it's not impossible, like plenty of people create content in other languages, but the more sort of like prominent you are on social media and, and these kinds of platforms, the more likely you will get pushback if you're not speaking Mandarin um and so so that to me
0: can I ask you to elaborate on that with some examples because I, I've never heard of that before that that social media w- what do you mean by that are, are influencers who are speaking in being
1: prioritized over those who speak fang Yin? is that what you're saying and and do you have any examples of that so I that as far as sort of like the promotion algorithm of like Douyin, I don't know but here's what I do know so a couple of years ago there was a sort of like blow up, I guess you could say of Cantonese content creators who were getting messages in the middle of their videos and being asked to speak Mandarin rather than Cantonese and basically not being able to upload their videos because of that. And so, um, this got a lot of, you know, like this kind of went viral. It's like, what, we can't even produce videos in Cantonese anymore. Um, and when asked about it, ByteDance essentially said like, we don't have enough Cantonese speakers in our censorship wing, right? So like we can't vet the videos for them adhering to China's censorship laws. And that to me is really fascinating, right? Because they're not sitting here and saying like, you can't speak Cantonese. They're simply saying, we haven't created the infrastructure so that Cantonese content creators can like use this platform, right? And so if you sort of like, I at some point did some searching on like doing videos um, for like fangyan videos. You will find them. So there it's not impossible, right? There are a lot of videos where people will compare mandarin to fangyan which I think is really really interesting, right? But there are enough public pressure campaigns, I think, on not just people on like social media, but also like artists and singers and such to use mandarin instead of local languages, right? So there was like 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 the rap of China, there was some pressure for people to rap in Mandarin as opposed to their local language, right? Um, There's enough pressure there that I think that that that, that creates sort of a culture of Mandarin hegemony.
0: That's so interesting. I I don't... uh I mean, a couple of years ago it was also when the Hong Kong protests were really going down. And of course, listeners know, Cantonese is the language spoken in Hong Kong. So I can imagine that was a very politically sensitive time. I'm not sure I really buy ByteDance's excuse that they don't have enough manpower to censor <laughs> in Cantonese. I mean, it is, <laughs> you know, it's, it's I the mean, second most, oh, it, isn't, it, isn't it? Is it the most popular fun year in, in China? I mean, they could definitely hire more or use AI indeed yeah. to um, flag things up. But oh, I think it's, that- it sounds more like, it's, as you say, it's more about hegemony and about promoting mandarin over cantonese I mean, um, as a political statement rather than anything else
1: yeah so like to me there's there's two ways to think about this right um so one of them is that like i agree with you that i'm not sure i buy it as like an oops oversight kind of thing but i kind of do buy it as a like we shouldn't have to do this right because like we have a language why Mm. why do you why would you want to use something else right and the reason i think that is that i remember around the time of the white paper protests it was a little bit before that actually but there were there were online protests right of like people who would criticize zero COVID policies and get those posts taken down and a lot of cantonese speakers recognized that if they put their posts in colloquial cantonese they stayed up longer Because they weren't being flagged as quickly. So like, and actually this was used as a, I think a really telling example of where, when you have a state that is already convinced of the success of its own policies, in this case, Mandarin hegemony, you have a situation where like there, there actually are blind spots, right? So like, Cantonese speakers are really excited about this because it's like, we found a blind spot here. So that to me seems reasonable to your question of, is it the most popular spoken Fangyan? That's a really difficult question to answer, right? Because it sort of depends on where mm. you draw the line about what, what counts as a separate Fangyan mm. and what doesn't. Certainly if we're sp- thinking of sort of like like cantonese is certainly one of the most well known it also has to me the most structure um so if again if we think about sort of like what makes it possible for languages to survive and thrive one of them is like a way to teach it and cantonese probably has the most robust educational structures and resources besides mandarin so there is that right um but then like if we consider sort of like because sometimes we'll use Mandarin to mean Guanhua, which is like the guanhua Fangyan region, which stretches all across Northern China, right? If we consider that whole region, like one Fangyan region, then that's like population-wise very high, but then like within that, there are lots of different... So ultimately it's how you would answer that would depend on where you draw the line around what is separate and what is not.
0: Yeah, absolutely. But I would say it's one where it is probably one of the most valid contenders to be to have the label of language because yes. of how not intelligible it is to just your, your Mandarin speaker. You can't just—it's yeah. not just a different way of hearing things. Yes. It's literally. Different pronunciations compared to, let's say, you know, the Dongbei accent, like right. Northeastern accent, or, or the Nanjing accent, indeed. Oh, I'm, I see, I'm falling into it now, I'm calling it an accent, but that's yeah. also loaded. No, it's I
1: mean, um, <laughs> these, are, these, these are difficult things to like sort of dr- circumscribe, right? But absolutely, right? And and like not only, and, and sort of thinking of other ways that languages survive and thrive, right? There's a whole entertainment industry that is Cantonese speaking, right? So there's Cantopop, um, there's Cantonese movies, and then The other sort of thing is that abroad, right, um, there are a lot of spaces outside of the PRC where Cantonese is the primary Chinese language, right? Um, Like San Francisco is one of them. And so it has a very high number of speakers abroad as well. And so um, all Mm. of these things put together, right? And then there's the city of Hong Kong, right, which has seen Cantonese as its lingua franca since it, like since British colonialism, right, and so um, so yes, I think that it it certainly has a lot more structure, and because of that has been able to like be preserved and thrive in a way that a lot of other feng have not.
0: And to your point about it, how relevant it is for identity, Hong Kong is such a good case of that because when you talk to Hong Kongers who are unhappy with the way that the city has gone down in the last, well, pick pick any number of years, um, one of the things that they often talk about is Mandarin teaching in schools. That's one of the top things that they are concerned about when it comes to erosion of Hong Kong identity. Tell us about that. Yeah,
1: so in in thinking about sort of like language and identity, right? Um, I think one of the reasons that you get a lot of state rhetoric that really push the idea that fengian are not languages, and in particular, that Cantonese is not a language, is because I think that there is like a very clear recognition from the PRC state that language and identity go hand in hand, and they find identities that run counter to sort of like this Chinese identity that is tied to the PRC state that is that that ties ethnicity to nation to loyalty to the state into sort of one unified Chinese identity. They find anything counter to that to be really threatening, right? And so, I think that there is, um, especially since 2019, but you're right, like before that, Cantonese was used both subtly and directly as a language of protest, right, as a way to either sort of denote a specific Hong Kong identity that is separate and distinct from Chinese or an alternative Chinese identity. Right. So like, I don't know if nationalism is the right word. I would argue it's not right, but at least sort of like a distinct identity, right. That is actively not Chinese, but you'll also see sort of pride in Cantonese as used to sort of reclaim the moniker of like a cultural chinese identity away from the state right that like cantonese is a really old language that it has ties to Tang Dynasty poetry that, like, if you if you read Tang Dynasty poetry in Cantonese, it rhymes better than it does in Mandarin, and so therefore has sort of like ties to Chinese cultural touchstones that are better than Mandarin. For a while, I saw a lot of memes circulating around Facebook where it's like, "Mandarin's only one hundred years old, but Cantonese is two thousand years old," and like, I could be, I have been right, critical of the historicity of these claims, but the their existence to me is fascinating. Because it shows how people are pushing back against the idea of the Chinese state, defining what it means to be Chinese, controlling what it means to be Chinese, and tying it to Mandarin, right? And so Cantonese in that way has been... Upheld as a way to push back against the PRC state.
0: Absolutely. Um, and what about Fanye across mainland China? Then I mean, one of the reasons I'm so fascinated with this is because a couple of years ago I started realizing, gosh, I can't I can't actually remember how my grandmother's ancestral Fanye is spoken. You know, she she brought me up quite a lot when I was little, and she comes from Yangzhou, a southeastern city, and that's the Fanye that we used to speak growing up, but then it occurred to me, I I can't actually remember how to speak that. (laughs) I can still understand her when she says it, but I I couldn't remember it myself. So it it triggered in me this kind of need to feeling that I have to preserve that oral part of my culture. So it's it's funny in other parts of the country,
1: in mainland China, also at risk of dying out. That's a great question. Um, To me, one of the ways I like to reframe that question is, I think we often think of languages as dying, which is a natural process right I think we should think of them instead as being let to die because I think then that way we're talking about it being an active process right so preserving languages is active and choosing not to is also active and the reason I, I like to frame it that way is because that way we can sort of say like are they at risk of, being not invested in. Yes, very much so, right? So I get a lot of people after talks that I give who talk about this, who say like, I never learned the language of my grandparents. I wish I had, right? And I think that there is a mourning of the lack of structures to make that possible. So the Cantonese, I think, is rather unique in how it has fueled a kind of identity that is quite political, right? But there is pushback among speakers of lots of different Fanyin against this lack of investment, right? Against what they see as sort of the slow death of their regional languages that is being let to happen right? And so in Shanghai, you see some of this, right? You ha- you see people sort of protesting the lack of, of structures to learn and speak Shanghainese. In Sichuan, you have sort of like a, a, a great local rap culture that often sort of like lionizes how, how wonderful it is. And when I talk to speakers of other regional languages, um, Taiwanese is another sort of separate example but places like 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 sichuanese or shanghainese right people often don't really care about calling them languages or dialects they just want to be able to learn and speak their mother tongue right and so there is a, i think mm. the, the sense that mandarin hegemony is endangering china's linguistic diversity i think that that's a widespread feeling
0: mm. That's really interesting. I'm, I'm glad that is because the diversity is just so interesting. Um, and do you think part of that process of fighting back is also destigmatization Because I think part of what some people in China think is, or at least it was the state-promoted narrative, is that speaking Putonghua, speaking standardized Mandarin means you're more educated, you're more professional, or that you're of a higher class, you're more of an elite. Whereas if you're, if you're speaking and you're more likely to be a farmer, or someone who's a migrant worker, or someone who's basically not as educated, not as elite. And so there is that destigmatization to to kind of celebrate the beauty of these languages rather
1: than just say they're only because you're not yeah. educated. So this is another thing, a narrative that comes up a lot. is like, well, can you blame people for teaching their kids to learn Mandarin? Like that's how they're going to get jobs and that's how they're going to make money. And it's like, well, you could sort of say, you, there's two ways you can frame this. It's why don't you learn Mandarin? It's economically beneficial to you. Or you could frame it as why are we accepting that Mandarin is the only economically beneficial language, right? Why are we accepting that? And so it's flipping the script a little bit and asking ourselves, like, do we have to live in a world where one language has this much power, right? Do we have to live in a world where linguistic discrimination is just considered to be normalized? And I would argue that I don't think we have to live in that world, right? Um, I'd argue that that's, the norm in most places in the world, right? Like my country included, right? There's an enormous amount of linguistic hierarchy here. But I also think that we don't necessarily have to accept that, right? We can imagine a world where multilingualism is celebrated, right? And that it's considered an asset and a skill rather than something that that is at best sort of like Superfluous, right? And at most, like harming our ability to like Mm. speak this economically. Like these these discourses are created, and they're created through structures, but they're also created by us repeating them. And so, I think that there is like there's a way to sort of, yeah, flip the script.
0: Mm. yeah i i i think i agree with a lot of that the only thing is like when, when hong kong people say to me you know why should our children learn mandarin i, I do kind of buy the economic argument that you know I, I do see the reason in that and at the risk of sounding like a a tiger parent you know kids are able to learn multiple languages yes. <laughs> they can just code switch yes. um, if you start the put them in the right environment i think it's a national context of china we're talking about where there is just one language that's seen us above everything else but i think it is possible for people People to have that standard mandarin but also re- retain their cultural heritage and their, their their roots basically absolutely
1: and and i do want to sort of clarify that when i say we here right like we have a choice and we can flip the script like some of us in the we have way more power than others right and so like if you're just like a parent who's trying to do best by their kids right i i have a lot more empathy for trying to make these hard choices than if you were a policymaker or you're like the head of an educational institution, and you're deciding which languages education to invest in, right? So like, definitely, there's like a huge power differential in like who the we are here. But you're right. I mean, I I talk to a lot of parents, sometimes they'll ask me after talks, it's like, what should I teach my kids? And I'm like, it's a really personal question. And I, I don't know. It's a really, really difficult question. But what to me what i'd like to imagine as a world to be right is a world where that decision is not based upon like structural hierarchies and 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 sort of discriminatory hierarchies right like that's that's the world that i think we mm. should try to imagine rather than like sort of like having to make really difficult choices and and if we're thinking about china in particular right this gets particularly tragic and violent when we think about Spaces that are majority, not Han, right? So like these choices for a Hongkonger are difficult and painful. Um, and then when you look at a, a place like Xinjiang and you're like, th- those choices suddenly also put you at risk of much worse than your child, not knowing the, the most economically advantageous language. Right. But then like, like, you know, it's like a choice between Absolutely. preserving your ethnic heritage and like, Potentially like being seen as like subversive or dangerous, and because you don't speak Mandarin well. And so, in terms of like how violent these hierarchies can be, right? Like, these are the reasons that we should be critical of these hierarchies, both big and small.
0: Gina. One of the final things I want to ask you about then is just how much you buy this CCP argument about national identity, a uniform national identity pegged by a uniform language, because that's why they do it. That's why they give Mandarin the the the, the top, or will put on this new version of Mandarin, uh, you know, the top pedestal. Do you think that a united country with one national identity across the size of China needs to have one language? Or are there other ways of thinking about national identity that also isn't about just one language.
1: So there's two questions in your question. One is what is and one is what should be, right? So as far as what is, Mm. one of the arguments I make in my book is that they can say all day that like Chinese identity is unified and such, but like just looking at what people are speaking every day, it's not, right? On the ground, people have a whole multitude of ways of imagining what it means to be Chinese and it is diverse and Multi textured and contextual, right? Like, so like Chinese identity means something different in different contexts, right? And that's the reality of national identity. Now, the question is the second question is, should it be that way, right? Is that something that we should celebrate or is that something that we should try and shift with the power of the state? And to me, right, trying to sort of like a top down enforcement. Of someone's identity to me is a kind of violence and and i really push back against that right and i mean i live in the united states i'm a white american and i am like deeply cognizant of how like the enforcement of there's only one way to be american has been in my country like extremely violent and racialized right and so in order for like my country to really be the kind of community that lives up to its stated ideals is to accept a pluralistic idea of, of citizenship and nationality. And to me, if I look at China, I see it as in the same way. Right. Um, and that putting people in sort of the straitjacket of there's only one way to express your identity is to me, not an, ethical or way to imagine identity.
0: That's so interesting. And I don't want to open another can of worms on identity (laughs) because I've taken up so much of your time already. But can I play devil's advocate just to say, isn't all identity top-down in the sense that all identity is constructed somehow by a source of power you know if if you talk about your American example you're talking about the difference between a white America as 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 a source of national identity versus I guess a a nation of immigrants which is much more pluralistic and allows in many different you know um, ethnicities of people that's still a top-down notion of national identity it's still constructed (laughs) this is what I mean about a can of worms, but I I just mean, you know, it's always going to be top
1: down to some level, isn't it? I mean, that's a really, really, I've never been asked this before, and that's actually a great question. And so the way I like to think about it is that I'd love to live in a world where power hierarchies don't exist, but they do, right? And so I guess one of the ways that I would respond to that is to say first that I think we can push back against like powerful institutions that, that seek to again, sort of like constrain the way that we imagine our identities. The other thing I would argue, right, is that I think that everyone has the right to like consent to what their nation looks like. And I I was, so something Franz Fanon said, right, is that like, if you're creating a national identity without the consent of the people you're governing, you're creating a kind of violence, right? And so um, I think about that a lot in terms of like Hong Kong, right? And it's like, there's this this insistence that hong kong is part of china and and therefore just has to be chinese and it's like well if you're taking a former colony and you're not like allowing them to be a part of the conversation of what it means to be chinese then that is imitating the colonial power structures right and so I think that you're right there are people in the United States who don't want to be considered a country of immigrants and who do not want to be considered multiracial and so there's there's never going to be a lack of power hierarchies right but I I think that there there has to be a consideration of like the people that are being included in this identity I think need to have the right to consent to what that structure means, if that makes sense.
0: <laughs> That's a lot to think about. Thank you so much, Gina. Um, and thank you so much for joining Chinese Whispers. Oh, my pleasure. It's been a great conversation. Thank you for listening to this episode of Chinese Whispers. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're listening to this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel, remember that Chinese Whispers has its own channel as well. If you just search Chinese Whispers, wherever you get your podcast from, you will always get the latest episode first there.